John 8, 31 says, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word and you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you continue my word, then you're my disciples. Obey right away and all the way. Partial obedience is still disobedience. What does this say? A.W. Tozer says, prayer will become more effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Ouch. Because as God's people learned that day, and I think we continue to learn over and over again, commitment isn't measured by how loud you shout it, but how true you walk it. Hello, I'm Pastor JP. Welcome, we are so glad you are checking us out online. We hope the word you're about to hear is an encouraging point in your life today. So, we're praying for you, we love you, stay tuned. So we've been in this journey of Psalms of the Ascent. These were a special section of Psalms that were originally songs that one sung in the Hebrew had, a, had a, a sense of lyric about them and rhyme and pattern that made them easy to recite and remember. And then over the decades and time, they began to write them down. And so then, and then it began to expand and have a, this, we have this whole collection, this whole book of songs or psalms. And maybe not all of them were sung, but probably most of them were sung, and especially the songs that are noted as the, the songs of ascent. And they were sung as they made their way to Jerusalem, because three times a year, they were on a mission, and they had to go. And it was, it was very meaningful, because it forced them to stop what they were doing and it was kind of like uh, camp on the move, like discipleship camp, but like uh, every day was a, a day-long activity, and the activity was hiking. So they didn't have swimming and relay races and, and all of that. It was hike. And while they hiked, they talked about the Lord, and they sung about the Lord, and they got their life back in focus and they got their hearts back in tune because once they got to Jerusalem for the week that they were about to celebrate, that's when they really engaged in community worship. And there would be some type of festival, a feast. And so in all of those songs being sung, we have Psalm 132. So right here we see verse 1, and it's the longest out of the songs of ascent, and it's a little different. It's a little odd, and we'll talk about that in a moment. It says, Lord, remember David and all his self-denial. He swore an oath to the Lord, and he made a vow to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or go to my bed. I will not allow no sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids till I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling 
for the mighty one of Jacob. And we heard it in Ephrathah. And we came upon it in the fields of Jaar. And let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool, saying, Arise, Lord, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. May your priests be clothed with your righteousness, and may your faithful people sing for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not reject your anointed one. And the Lord swore an oath to David, a sure oath he will not uh, revoke. One of your own descendants I will place on your throne. And if your sons keep my covenant and the statutes I teach them, then their sons will sit on the throne forever and ever. For the Lord has chosen Zion, and he has desired it for his dwelling, saying, this is my resting place forever and ever. And here I will sit enthroned, for I have desired it. And I will bless her with abundant provisions. Her poor I will satisfy with food. And I will clothe her priest with salvation. And her faithful people will ever sing for joy. Here I will make a horn grow for David and set up a lamp for my anointed one. And I will clothe his enemy with shame, but his head will be adorned with radiant crown. Now, as you can tell, that does not sound like the rest of the songs of praise we've been reading. That sounds more like a history lesson. And so, in order to understand what and why we kind of have to know the heart of what they're referencing here. So you have to turn quickly, if you can, to Chronicles, First Chronicles, chapter 13. We'll just read a few verses, chapter 13, verse 6. And David, as King David, newly minted King David, and all of Israel went to Baha of Judah, that is Kirath-Jerim, which is also Gerar, which we read in Psalms, Gerar, to bring up from there the ark of God the Lord, who is enthroned between cherubim, and the ark that is called by the name. And they moved the ark of God from Abimadad's house on a new cart with Uzzah and Ahau guiding it. David and all the Israelites were celebrating with all their might before God, with songs and with harps and lyres and timbrels and cymbals and trumpets. And when they came to the threshing floor of Kaidan, Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark because his oxen stumbled. And the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah, and he struck him down because he had put his hand on the ark. And so he died there before God. Well, let's pray. Lord, we pause now, and we ask that you just help us over the next few moments to understand the heart of this song, why it is here, why it is the linchpin, the center, the, the gravitational force behind really the whole ascent. 
So may you now just speak a word into the heart of every listener. That your word is powerful enough and your spirit certainly strong enough and your grace and mercy certainly forgiving enough that if you cannot use me today, you certainly need not to. You can speak a word now. So we ask that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit says this day. And we ask it in the name and the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. She had lost it. Her wedding ring and her great-grandmother's wedding ring. And we were a fever pitch trying to find it. It was about this time, almost this time last year. I think we might have been in early November. For the life of us, Christy and I could not find her wedding rings. And her, and her great-grandmother's wedding ring, which I will say in actual value is but a meager fraction of the wedding band I placed on her hand for the record. But she was tore up. We tore the house upside down. We came out here to the church and tore it upside down, trying to find these rings. Then about a week later, after interrogating the little Philistines running around our house <laughs> and just slowly but surely zeroing in on what might have happened and piecing together fragments of stories we don't even know if it was real or some little two-footer's imagination, but we were starting to get real desperate. And I found, while vacuuming, I think, the guest room, I found her wedding band, the one I placed on her hand. And so that was about a week or two later, right? But we still were missing her, her great-grandmother's ring. And she was still just, just distraught over that. And we had pieced together now that one of the little Philistines had gotten into our bedroom and by her nightstand and had decided that, that he was going to play with, the, with these little shiny objects and that he was using them inside of, we were, it was, we were starting to wrap presents for Christmas and he was using the tubes of wrapping paper as some type of weapon, and I guess the rings were somehow the projectiles. <laughs> and so it is a miracle that we found them at all because we had gathered up. I had to do some work out here in this room up on the lift, and so there was one night where we came out here late and we, uh, she brought, she made me bring all the presents and all the wrapping paper, and she sat right over there and wrapped presents while I worked on things. So I wouldn't be up on the lift. She didn't want me up on the lift with no one in the building. And I was like, okay. But then she was like, but then you got to take me and like, you know, all these supplies. 
So we did. And so that's why we came out here. Then we had to search through all those Christmas supplies. And some of that, the waste of it, we threw away and she was mortified. I thought I was going to have to get in the dumpster. But it had already been taken by the time we had gotten to this point and realizing what had, what had gone down. Because we had figured out that a wedding band was in one of those tubes of paper and it had fallen out in the bedroom that we had placed it in and that's how I found it. So we couldn't find her great-grandmother's wedding band. And now I think months had gone by. And so she is uh, now taking out trash and, and cleaning up and we're doing the cleaning up thing. And does everybody have like that drawer, that cabinet that's like your um, grocery bag stowaway where you save, ev save every plastic bag you've ever owned, you've ever gotten from a store and you shove it in there? And even though you have 14,000, you're never going to throw any of them away? And so we have one of those. And so she, grows, she goes in and pulls one out and she puts it on the counter and it goes tink. And she opens it up and lo and behold, there was her great grandmother's wedding band. There was celebration in the house. There was crying and singing and dancing. It was just awesome that somehow that was a bag from supplies. It had been played with by a little two-and-a-half-footer, little Philistine. It had traveled out to the church. It had made its way back into the van back to our house, and somehow, even when cleaned up from that, did not get thrown away, but put in the cabinet in that bag, and then somehow was pulled out by her randomly. I don't know. I think that's God's grace at work, and put on the counter. Now, I want to tell you, I struggled in this whole ordeal. I struggled. Because that, you know, your wedding band, I, I maybe have lost my wedding band for three minutes, and that was enough to give me a heart attack. And I, there's just because, and I know, I know anybody, anybody can relate. Have you ever lost your wedding band? Have you ever felt the fear of God from your spouse? You ever seriously contemplated going to the store and buying one just like it, hoping it passes? <laughs> and so this is because it's a symbol that has meaning. That's why she's so upset about, that's why she was so upset about her, her great-grandmother, is it had this special meaning. And you know, and I'm just thinking, and every now and then I'll see her, her wedding band that I gave her up on the counter and, and just sitting in random places. But no, our great-grandmother's wedding band, it's, a, you know, it's in the nice box. And I'm like, have we not learned? This is, a, this is a symbol of our relationship. This is a 
symbol of our covenant. The ark of God, that special golden box with rings that had poles and cherubim on top, that it was not just a symbol of God's presence. It, it, was, it was the moniker of the covenantal relationship between God and the people that he had chosen. It, it was, in effect, the ring. That Yahweh in Israel had this covenant relationship. And instead of a golden ring, they had a golden ark. And they lost it. They lost it. And we all know it doesn't bode well when you, like, lose it. When you lose the symbol of your commitment. And when you do, that means you got to be on your best behavior. That means you got to go above and beyond. You got to work extra hard to show that that, that was just an accident. But in their, in their case, in this story, in this, in this moment in history between God and his people, they were not doing such a good job with this. God is not pleased. I mean, he still loves them, but like he's kind of raw about the deal. They've lost the ring. They've lost the ark. And it's been away for decades, and no one seems to have cared about it. And now, now someone's seen it. God has taken it upon himself to make the, the, the Philistines who had it, to make their lives so miserable that the Philistines finally said, we got to get rid of this thing. And so, and so someone within the... Israelite camp, someone said, we've located it. And David said, come on, Israel, let's go get it. Can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine? I found my wedding ring. We have found the ark. And now we have this new capital. The capital has just been moved from Hebron to Jerusalem to 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 now Zion. What a wonderful way to establish this new capital, but to bring in and usher in God's ark, God's presence, uh, the symbol, the, the actual symbol, the, the thing that sealed the deal with our relationship with God. And so they said, let's do it. Let's go get it and let's make a big to-do about it. Tens of thousands go and get the thing. It's kind of like, you know, it was kind of like this huge renewing your vow ceremony. And so they go and, and they, they go get it. And so David says, okay, but listen, we can't just do this any old way. So he goes out and he, and he goes out into the, the little cart lot and he says, okay, we need to get a new one. 
And he goes and he picks out a nice brand spanking new 1972 Chevy El Camino. It's got like seven miles on it. You see what I'm saying? And he says, all right, this is, we're going, we got a brand new cart. Shiny brand new cart. You know, the El Caminos, you could, they got them. You don't know what it is in the back. It's like a trunk. It's like a truck. It's a trick. That's what it is. But it's new. And so they go out and they, they're, they're good and they start the, the ceremony of renewing their vows with God. And they go and they find the place where the ark is. And they hoist the ark and they throw it up in the back of that El Camino. And they start. It's in the Hebrew. It's in there. <laughs> and they have this big parade. They have this this big praising and worshipful, but this big dancing and celebrate. Can you imagine? It's, it's like the whole nation had lost the wedding ring that God had given them and they found it. So now they're all very excited and big for dancing, singing, praising. And they get to the threshing floor. And Samuel, the name is translated Nacon. They get to the threshing floor of Nacon, and when they do, something happens. And what happens is odd, because a threshing floor, a threshing floor is flat. A a threshing floor is a hard-pressed, it's usually a a nice, smoothed-out, flat, plateau-like place, it is pressed, it has been leveled, it is a work area where they could be used to press and to sort out harvested grain, the, the, you know, to get out the shaft and the weeds and all of that. So it is, it is spread out too, it's usually spread out nice and flat, usually out in, the, in a big open area because the more wind and air that could get through that nice flat open space, the better. Let nature help us sift through this stuff. And so they get to the spot in the trip where it should be the smoothest, where, you know, nothing really should go wrong. And the El Camino has a blowout. They're going five miles per hour on a, a newly paved tarmac at JFK, and they have a blowout. And the ox stumbles on, the threshing, on a threshing floor of all places. And it kind of makes sense. Because, see, this is where God starts to sort it out. And all throughout the Old Testament, you'll see this pattern where God uses threshing floors as his workstations. I don't think this was a mere coincidence. He tends to do this over and over and over again, where he he picks these threshing floor places to have these moments with his people where he does some separating and some operating and some working on and some working out and some sorting out. So you you would have thought either Israel would have taken a a detour around a threshing floor or should have seen it coming. And David and God's 
people, they are now at a crossroads, literally at Nacon's threshing floor. Because the ark is the seat by design. It is the seat of God's presence. It is one of its functions. It is literally like a seat. And one of its instructions was for it to be carried up on the shoulders. It was designed to be lifted up and carried up on the shoulders, much like kings were lifted up and carried through the streets, like up on a litter, like a chair up on a platform. And so God said, this is how you are to carry the ark because this is, I'm sovereign. See, the sovereign normally got lifted up above everybody else and carried out. And God says, I'm king, I'm sovereign over Israel. So everywhere I go, you need to lift me up higher than anything else. Instead, they threw the ark in the trunk. And sure, it was a brand new El Camino, but come on. They dishonored it. And so God chooses that spot to have a little blowout. Try to get some attention because this is the place where he's least likely, least likely for an ox to stumble. And when the cart begins to shake, good old cousin Utz gets over there and reaches for it to keep it from shaking. The very container of the presence of God, and when he touches it, God's power strikes him dead on the spot. And the nation gasps, and David gets upset, and Uzzah is dead. In the middle of, like, renewing their vows. That'd be kind of awkward. They're singing, they're dancing, they're praising. They're bringing the ark home. It's been gone, it's been lost for like a long time. And now they, they are in this recommitting, this renewing their vows moment, and they're bringing the ark into their new capital. They're, all their focus is on, on God and putting God and God's presence back in the center of Israel and the Israel, Israeli life. And David is beside himself. You got dead man lying on the threshing floor. And when the dust settles and, the, and reality sets in, they knew. They knew there were protocols that God had given specific protocols over and over again. Very specific. On how they were to transport the ark. And that God's power supernaturally permeated that ark, making it inherently dangerous, if not handled correctly, much like radioactive materials today. Can you imagine how careful we would be with it if it had plutonium in it? We'd be very careful. Well, it had the Pentateuch in it, and it's far more powerful. They had those guidelines, not because God was feeling, you know, really finicky about it, 
And he had those guidelines to how to handle it to protect them. If they wanted God's presence among them, then there was going to have to be a way in which they conduct themselves to be able to have it. They knew better. Uzzah knew not to touch it. It had been in his father's house for decades. And he did it anyway. He disregarded what he knew to be true. Now, this was not the homecoming, vow-renewing, capital-establishing parade David was hoping for. It was quite the national scandal and embarrassment. And I'm pretty sure this is not what he wanted remembered for all time. By David's own confession in 1 Chronicles 15, he says, we did not inquire of God about how to do it in the prescribed way. But here we are, hundreds of years, hundreds of years, and they sang this song. And we read its lyrics still today. And it sounds, listen, I know it's like, you get all of that from 132? Lord remembered David in all his self-denial. Then it goes on to talk about, as we read 132, it talks about the vow that David makes to, to the Lord. And it talks about the covenant then it talks about the fields of Jaar. It talks about Ephrata, that's the Jerusalem. It talks, it's talking about the ark and it coming into Zion. It's just being nice about it. They didn't, they didn't really know how to write about Utsa in the lyrics. But they also knew they should never forget. Because if 132 was a song about anything, it was a song about it's better to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. Let me say it again. Because I didn't put anything on the screen today because I want you to listen to me. It is better to repair, to prepare and prevent than to repair and repent. Sure, God's word, God's word can, can bring reconciliation and repair and, and there can be repentance and things can be made whole. But friends, it is better to let God's word in and let it shape you and prepare you and let it be that preventative measure in your life that keeps you from reaching out and touching those things that you ought not touch. To let God separate those things within you and around you long before you ever get to a threshing floor. Let's stop the parade right there. They didn't go any further. They parked that El Camino with the ark in the back at, at, at uh, Obed-Edom's house. Obed-Edom's house. And while it was there, they must have treated it right because the Bible says while it was there, they prospered and there was, there was blessings for like three months while it was there. 
Proverbs 21, 2 says, a person may think that their own ways are right, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now, how much could be avoided in this life if we were to go to God's word first to prepare, to prepare and prevent instead of constantly having to repair and repent? Now, I'm not saying don't repent. Obviously, David and the whole nation has some things to work out. David's intentions were good. The people's intentions were good. They did what they did because they thought it was okay. They threw that ark in the back of that El Camino, that new cart, because they thought it was okay. For whatever reason, he reached out and thought he could steady when that El Camino started to shake and he thought he could touch the ark and hold it steady, even though God said there's only certain people who could touch it, it's better for you not to touch it. Better for it to hit the ground and be covered in mud than for someone who, who's not ceremonial and spiritually clean to touch it. Wonder why? Because that mud ain't got no sin in it. But that hand did. They did what they did because they thought it was okay. They knew not to use the cart. But see, the reason why they thought it was okay is because the Philistines had used the cart to drag it out in that field and leave it there. But see, the Philistines didn't know any better. God's people did. Now, maybe they thought God's word had changed on the matter. Kind of an odd way to view the situation, given the fact that the Philistines were dying left and right and suffering pestilence and plague because the ark was bringing it upon them and they were trying to get rid of it. Hello, there's your sign. See, partial obedience is still disobedience. Where are all the parents at? Delayed obedience is still disobedience. I just help some mom and dads. But it works for believers too. Partial obedience is still disobedience. Obey right away and all the way. That should be our new saying. Obey right away and all the way. John 8, 31 says, so Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, if you continue in my word and you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you continue my word, then you're my disciples. Obey right away and all the way. Partial obedience is still disobedience. What does this say? A.W. Tozer says, prayer will become more effective when we stop using it as a substitute for obedience. Ouch. Because as God's people learn that day, and I think we continue to learn over and over again, commitment isn't measured by how loud you shout it, but how true you walk it. How true you walk it. David and the people of God eventually continued the, the renewing of the vow ceremony into Zion. 
Except this time, they match the intensity of their praise with the intensity of their obedience. And that's 1 Samuel. had already taught them in chapter 15. To obey God is better than sacrifice. People of God throughout the ages singing this song over and over and over again. It just seemed like it just seemed like it didn't no matter how many times they would ascend and go up to Jerusalem. It was just a reminder that they couldn't keep their end of the marriage vows very well. Year after year after year after year of sacrifices and days of atonements and year after year of learning the law and reciting the songs and learning the scriptures and dealing with the internal struggles of knowing God's word, but trying to live God's word and obey God's word, knowing that how, where, when are we ever going to get this right? How are we going to do this? We ever going to keep up our end of the covenant, our end of the vows, because God keeps thankfully having mercy on us. Until eventually God sent himself in Jesus. And Jesus becomes the fulfilled anointed king of the line of David, who now, as it, Psalm 132 says, says now sits enthroned forever who clothes us us with salvation and we who are faithful forever will forever sing for joy now that's how much God loves us now you have to come we have to come with grips with two realities he is holy he is holy and he loves you. Now you have to deal with that. He could not love you anymore. He could not love you any more than he does. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he cannot compromise his holiness. Now, only a God like our God can both not compromise his love for you and not compromise his holiness. But he did so through Jesus. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commands. Listen, friend. For all of this journeying and all of this building up to faith and knowing God's word and trying to be obedient into it. Obedience to God and his word and what he speaks to you and what we know to be true and what we should be doing. It doesn't make God love you more. It reveals how more of you loves God for joining us again. We hope today's word was a blessing to you, maybe even challenged and inspired you. 
We'd love to connect with you, serve you in any way. Go to mynorthside.church, click the link for us to connect. We are praying for you. We believe that God has great things in store for you. We'll see you next time.